gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to become a full member of our um, community and to get access to all sorts of cool stuff. Um, And actually, since we're talking about new cool stuff, I might as well start at the top by announcing is probably the wrong word since we brought it up on the, I was, I was a guest on the Friday uh, dispatch podcast. My first time. Um, Normally I'm not there because Sarah and Steve do interviews with newsmakers and I tend to just sit there and say, are you going to eat your fat? Um, And that kind of thing. And it distracts congressmen and senators and the like. But uh, I was on today in part because we did a, special episode where we had a special guest, uh, my friend, Chris Starwalt from formerly from Fox news. And, uh, so we did sort of an extra bonus punditry, uh, panel kind of thing. And I should give you a little backstory. Uh, basically the day the news broke, which I already knew because Chris had told me earlier in the day, um, that Chris had been fired from Fox news. Um, I immediately offered all sorts of whatever assistance I could, including um, floating the idea of him coming to do something for us. We couldn't afford to replace his whole Fox salary, but we could carve out something for him. And I think he's a real, be a real asset and blah, 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 blah. And in the couple of weeks since that news, we've been getting um, barraged with emails and tweets and whatnot from people saying, why haven't you hired Chris Dyerwald? You should hire Chris Dyerwald. And the fact is, is that we made the decision to invite him into the family long ago, but he's trying to get his life put together. And um, for various tactical and strategic reasons, um, we thought it was a completely fair thing for him to ask to put off anything formal, never mind an announcement, until he got more ducks in a row. Well, now he's got more ducks in a row, or at least looks it looks like the ducks are converging on a um, passable military formation of a line. And so, uh, it is now official. He's going to be a contributing editor. He's going to do various things for us, including be part of the bullpen for dispatch live events, which only, um, members of the community can see. He will be writing for us regularly and he'll be doing other exciting things under other shingles down the road, I am sure. But, um, we're delighted to have him on board. And I'll say this about, about Chris. I've known Chris for a long time. Um, I, um, before I figured out who he really was, you know, some of the West Virginia, uh, uh, corn pone, as I would say, um, left me cold because I kind of thought it was an act and, um, it turned out it's not an act. It's who he is. And I now find it quite endearing and entertaining. Um, but in the, I've talked a lot on this podcast and elsewhere about the people, um, who have disappointed me in the air, who disappointed me in the era of Trump. And, um, and, but by no means have I exhausted my list. Um, but the list of people who have really, really impressed me and caused me to reevaluate upwards, my opinion of them, uh, that list is a lot shorter 
and I don't want to like name everybody because then if I start naming people, um, people I left off will feel like I am wasn't don't think well of them and that's that's not a good idea wmf buckley always used to there's some latin phrase which i can never remember and ramesh always has to remind me um but buckley always used to quote the latin for um to include is to necessarily exclude and it's the danger of once you start making lists of people the people who want to be on the list take offense that they're not mentioned so sometimes it's best just to say all the great people out there rather than list Bob, Sarah and Ken for fear of leaving out Todd and, and, um, Jorge or whatever. So anyway, but, uh, on that list of people who've really impressed me over the last five years, um, despite all sorts of pressures to cave to the times, um, Chris is near the top of that list. And, uh, doesn't mean I agreed with every, you know, take he had or all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, he showed me in all sorts of ways that maybe someday in my memoirs, I will recount that he had, um, that underneath the hillbilly exterior, there's, there's, um, an enormous amount of not just intelligence, but integrity to the guy. And, um, and so I'm delighted to have him on board and, um, um, you know, he doesn't want to be, He's a, you know, he's a conservative and he doesn't want to be in the professional sort of, here's why conservatism was always BS sort of max boot school. And he doesn't want to beat up on Fox all the time because what's the point in all that? Uh, so he's going to come in and do serious analysis and, um, and I'm sure some rank punditry and, uh, we're delighted to have him. So anyway, that's out of the way. Where to begin? Um, I'll get to the G-File stuff in a second. I gotta say, I am, I think everybody knows at this point that I am not some, you know, COVID truther. Um, I think that the pandemic is serious. As I constantly say on this podcast, pandemics are one of the very few things that are, are, um, exceptions to what the, uh, um, the proper functioning of a liberal democracy you know, when you have, there are certain crises that justify, um, suspending the normal rules and invasion is the obvious, you know, a military invasion from an enemy is an obvious one. Natural disasters are another one. Um, but the, the, but pandemics going back to, you know, yellow fever outbreaks where George Washington ordered quarantines are, are a perfectly legitimate exception to the rule. And, um, this is one of the, you know, one of the classic arguments among, you know, particularly libertarians, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, Robert Higgs, Higgs wrote crisis and Leviathan, which is sort of this seminal work on this point about how crises are these things that over time, there's a ratchet effect where the reasonable exceptions to the, to the norms about the role of government get, um, uh, reduced or adumbrated or whatever to the point, um, where the government is doing things that it shouldn't be doing. And, you know, you can look at, I mean, I wrote about this at length about the damage that the Wilson administration did to, um, the proper role of government. You know, it basically really is the thing that, you know, there's some, there's some precedent, some roots that go back to the 19th century with reconstruction and the civil war and all that. 
But really what made the administrative state a thing was really the Wilson administration. Um, and then that got turned to 11 by the New Deal, uh, where there was this crisis of the Depression, plus later the crisis of World War II, and government got into all sorts of things that the founders never envisioned. And even though the government got out of some of it, they never went back to the status quo. That's the ratchet effect, right? If the government gets involved, it increases its involvement um, by 100% because of some crisis in the economy or in some other aspect of our lives, and then once the, that crisis is over, it doesn't go back to the status quo ante, it reduces its role to 20%. But so that still means that you have this this ratchet of, of greater government involvement. And all you have to do is look at, you know, the Supreme Court jurisprudence from the New Deal or, um, you know, the, the, one of the, my favorite examples, which um, Milton Friedman always apparently reportedly hated people bringing up, was that Milton Friedman was one of the guys who worked, um, I don't know what it was called back then, you know, but basically the, the labor department or the, the, you know, the, whatever the precursor of the council of economic advisors was, I don't know what the agency was, or I can't remember, but he came up with this idea for how to raise revenue really, really quickly during the war. And during a war, it was really important to raise revenue. That's another one of these exceptions, right? You're in this existential struggle for Western civilization. Um, it's okay to talk about figuring out new ways to raise taxes to pay for it. And he's the guy, or his team, came up with uh, paycheck withholding. And um, it was a great way to just sort of grab revenue at the source um, and worry about refunds or whatever later. And of course, it was so efficient at collecting money that the federal government never got rid of it. And um, I think that's what prompted... Uh, um, Milton Friedman to say there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Uh, but you can find all sorts of examples about this kind of stuff. And, um, and I should say, contrary to like the sort of Ron Paulian libertarian argument that it's the ratchet only goes one way, that's not true either. Right. Um, you know, the, the expansions of government that came with crises, particularly wars, um, in some ways they eroded freedoms or they encroached on freedoms, particularly economic freedoms. But in other ways, they hastened other kinds of freedom. The best example of this is that um, were it not for war, you probably wouldn't have had integration until much later. Um, the military was um, ahead of the rest of the society on things like integration. Um, I'm not sure if you didn't have World War I, you would have had um, women get the vote when you did. I think they would have gotten it eventually, and it's worth remembering that in some states they had had it already in the 19th century, and yada, yada, yada. But that's all a complicated story. Um, my only point is, is that sometimes expansion of government yields other freedoms. You know, the, the federal government, there are all sorts of things. This is a very tricky thing for conservatives and libertarians to talk about. But there are lamentable things that come with um, uh, some of the, the, the civil rights movement reforms, um, in terms of states' rights and federalism and all of these kinds of things. And sometimes people very ham-fistedly talk about this stuff. Um, but 
But at the same time, it's worth pointing out that were it not for the federal government going in and essentially, first of all, in the Civil War, but also during the Civil Rights era in the 1960s, going in and crushing democratic tyrannies and abolishing democratic tyrannies in various states, uh, you wouldn't have had um, the expansion of freedom that comes with civil rights laws. And anyway, the whole point is it's complicated. I didn't mean to get off on this tangent, but anyway, it's, it's interesting stuff. And these are, in the before times, these were the kind of arguments that libertarians and conservatives would talk about in terms of where the trade-offs were, where we went wrong, what wrong turns there were, yada, yada, yada. Um, but anyway, so pandemics are things that are um, one of those things that you get to say, look, the federal government is only for a handful of things, and this is one of them. Where you go bad is where um, you have people who want to use um, things like pandemics or other crises as an excuse to radically expand the role of government in other ways. And that's the, um, the, you know, the Rahm Emanuel line about don't let a crisis go to waste. That's that insufferably annoying cliche that Democrats and Republicans often use. The Chinese character for crisis is also the character for opportunity, which I don't think is in fact true, but it doesn't matter. It's too good to check. Um, and I, I am for one starting to worry that there is evidence that, um, the government is going down that path, not with some mustache twirling evil intent, but just because if you are, um, even if you are completely decent law abiding, you know, fundamentally liberal democratic, you know, oriented progressive bureaucrat or social planner, the, the permission structure that dealing with a pandemic gives you to do other things that you want to get done, um, is just really tempting, is really tempting. And if you're in particular, if you are not constrained with a dogmatic aversion to government meddling from the, from above, uh, you don't see that this is the ratchet is a problem. You see the ratchet as an opportunity. And I think when the dust clears on the pandemic, we're going to be seeing examples of that. Um, but I, right now I don't want to speculate on what some of them are. If people out there see examples of what I'm talking about, feel free to send my way. Um, but anyway, all that said, I just, I, I kind of feel like the Biden administration is blowing the messaging on all of this. Um, when I listen to some of these public health officials or when I listen to Jen Psaki talk about masks and, um, and how vaccines won't end the need for masks, um, I, Bloomberg had a piece, I think today talking about how things won't be back to normal for seven years and all that. Look, maybe that's true. I don't think it's true. Um, and it may be, and as far as I understand, at least for right now, the science says if you get vaccinated, you should have, you should still wear a mask. And it has to do with the fact that the vaccine is intramuscular. Um, and so the antibodies that you generate are deep and internal or something like that. Um, and you could still have the virus live in your nose for a while until your antibodies deal with that. And that's one of the reasons why it'd be better to have a vaccine that was a nasal mist thing rather than an injection. And we'll probably get that and yada, yada, yada. So I understand there's a real science behind the need to keep wearing masks after we're vaccinated. But if you listen to 
a lot of people on MSNBC, which I do for professional reasons, um, or if you watch Jin Saki and her press conferences and whatnot, you kind of get the sense that they think mask wearing is it's kind of cool, you know, or it's a sign of some grander poetic commitment to national unity and everybody working together. And I, I can get some of that at the margins, but you no, know, I don't understand why you couldn't actually have the messaging, um, you know, that reflects my own personal view, which I think is actually more persuasive to most normal people. And at least, you know, then forgive me, that's how, you know, people in my line of work go through life as we, you know, as Ramesh likes to say, um, of course, I think I have all the right positions. If I didn't, these wouldn't be my positions. Um, but it seems to me you could just simply say something along the lines of, look, masks suck. They're annoying. It's, it's a, it's a pain to constantly wear them. Um, but for right now, they're necessary. And they're a really small price to ask from Americans to get this thing behind us and get us all back to work. And so we're going to dedicate our administration as much as possible to getting to a place where we don't have to wear masks. Um, and because uh, I think that's what most Amer how most Americans feel. And if you're one of these Americans who just really hopes that the masks never go away or any of that kind of stuff, well, I, I hope you're disappointed. Um, and I just think that like communicating that you actually understand why people don't like this thing and then ask them, ask something of them as a favor rather than spin it as a kind of virtue signaling um, and a kind of scolding kind of thing, uh, I just think is counterproductive and, and it invites bad feeling from people. Um, but maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe they got some focus groups that tell them otherwise. It just doesn't feel like it to me. Um, all right. So I did the G file today. It's long. It's weird. I just, I, I don't feel like doing a lot of punditry and I have, by the time I get to Friday and, and the G file is like the only thing I get to write that, um, I get to go where I want to go with it. And so I, I, I hinted at this in the Salatan podcast. And then again, I think last week in the solo podcast, um, I'm kind of fascinated with this question of why people are um, losing their minds and being crazy and why the, you know, we had this, uh, we had uh, Joe Wazinski back on uh, on the podcast on on the remnant on Thursday to talk about conspiracy theories. He's this expert about the polling and the attitudes and the spread of conspiracy theories. And some of it, as I think is clear in the conversation, uh, I, I believe him because I think he knows the material obviously much better than I do. And, um, all that, I just, there's still something in me that is skeptical that we aren't in a time of more rampant conspiracy theorizing. And, um, and I think part of his explanation probably ca captures a lot of the reason for it, which is that usually conspiracy theories aren't promulgated by a president of the United States. Um, they aren't things that a major political party feels for its own internal reasons 
it has to um, defend. And, um, uh, and so it can seem like they're more in our face than they were before because they are, but that doesn't mean necessarily that, that belief in conspiracy theories is more prevalent, um, or they're making more inroads. And I, I just haven't made up my mind about exactly why I still am a little skeptical about that finding, but I, and I, and, but I do think beyond just the conspiracy stuff, the general way in which people once respected responsible serious people like straight up leaders in the conventional sense of the word have the permission either psychological or political or financial to lie and to make stuff up and to defend lies and people who make stuff up and um and I also just think that it is more prevalent among normal people to exclude information that doesn't confirm what you want to believe. And I know I talk about this a lot, but um, it feels like confirmation bias, um, which is not quite the same thing as the spread of conspiracy theories, but they're related, is just is more of a problem than it's been in a very long time. And I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I wrote about a bunch of them in my book at book length. You know, I, I'm, I have this argument that, that romanticism, which is the elevation of feelings and passion above reason and logic, um, never went away. It just, we just stopped calling it that and that we live in a very romantic time. Um, I think the loss of faith and trust in institutions Leads, and I'm not going to do a whole Yuval Levin thing, but the loss of faith and trust in institutions, what that means is that the people in our communities and in our society who we once counted on as legitimizers or delegitimizers of certain ideas, if you no longer trust those people to be telling you the truth, you lose a, um, um, a certain amount of the antibodies that allow craziness from taking over. And, um, anyway, I could go on about all that stuff. I also, as I wrote in my book, think that we, we, we tend to view politics as a form of entertainment. And when you follow entertainment, your brain changes its criteria from, uh, you know, what is true and what is not true to, um, what you want to have happen versus what you don't want to have happen. And so I sort of play off of that in that I think Technology is changing our brains in all sorts of ways. And I don't necessarily mean structurally, though I think there is some evidence that there are actual structural changes to our brains when you grow up watching screens most of the time. But I, I, I guess the better way to think about it is our minds, right? There's a distinction between the mind and the brain. Um, but how, whichever term you want to um, use, um, our cabezas, are being malformed by the technological soup that we're all swimming in. And, you know, and as I, I argue, I mean, just think about how much of your life and never mind the lives of like your kids or your grandkids or teenagers, um, generally, how much of it is spent looking at screens? How much of it is spent manipulating screens? How much of it is um, uh, spent playing video games where you get to sort of work in a bespoke reality 
that you enjoy. And I'm not, I'm not going some Luddite thing on anti-video games. That's not my point. My only point is that if you live in an environment where more and more of both your recreational and your professional time comes from, is dedicated to manipulating images and words on screens. And that's part of how you make a living. That's part of how you entertain yourself. That's part of how you communicate with others. Um, It would be only, it would be weird if it didn't change your understanding of the world outside of screens, right? I mean, if, if a big part of your real life involves manipulating ones and zeros and images and stuff on screens, then um, that's part of your reality. And it's part of my argument um, is that, you know, we live in this, a big, a big chunk of our lives is spent in this sort of cut and paste realm. And our, we don't shut off that expectation when um, we start dealing in real life. And so we're starting to sort of live in a choose your own adventure kind of mindset where we want the the entertainment, the news to conform with the narrative arcs um, that we think represent a higher truth or the truth that we want to be true or however you want to phrase it. And, um, and I think that explains... I didn't get much into this in the, in the G file, but I think it explains a big chunk of what we call cancel culture is, you know, you, you hear people say things that cause you cognitive dissonance. You hear people say things that are not entertaining. You hear people say things that do not advance the plot of the story you're telling yourself about the real world. And so you want to sort of, you know, let's kill off that character. Let's, you know, I don't want to hear any more from that character in my, in my shows. And, um, um, and I think that that, you know, is a, is a part of where cancel culture, you know, comes from. And similarly, I think it's a big part of the, the, the fantasizing that is described that, that, that has characterized much of the last five years. I mean, it is no secret that Donald Trump saw governing as basically directing a reality show. He wanted people who looked like they came from central casting in his cabinet. Um, he liked the drama, the sort of throw the wine in your face and desperate housewives stuff. Um, he liked the you're fired drama. Um, he liked, you know, keeping people surprised and having the big reveals and all of these kinds of things. And I think a lot of people internalized that. Um, and we're still dealing with the consequences of that. Um, but more broadly, I think it's just the way a lot of us view the world now is like, and I, and, I, and this definitely goes for me. I've been making this point for a very long time that one of the ways I look at political questions is I ask myself, could you, co- could you possibly come up with a scenario where you stay loyal to the facts as we know them? Put them in a movie and have this, you know, the, per, the, the person and you know, the controversial person you're talking about come out the hero. And, you know, so, for example, if you were making a movie about um, the Palestinian Israel, Palestine Israel stuff, right? This is where I, I think the first time I ever wrote about this was in, in that context. Now, you could definitely make a movie 
that makes the Palestinians the heroes and the Israelis the bad guys. My hunch is that movie has been made many times. Um, I do not, I'm not saying that's the truth, but I think there is enough ammo on both sides of a, you know, a long conflict that you could, you know, do that. But I don't know that you could ever make, have a scene in a movie where someone walks into a daycare center and blows it up or walks into a pizza parlor full of teenagers um, and blows it up and have the audience think, um, wow, those were the good guys, right? I mean, maybe you can in some Middle Eastern countries. I, I assume maybe you can, but my guess is, is that they would, they would uh, depict it in a way that did not conform with the reality. And so that's one of the ways I think about like this, this, this censure stuff with Margie Taylor Greene and, and all of that. If you depict the facts as we know them accurately and you tried to make a, you know, a lifetime movie of the week about all of this, it is very difficult to my mind to make a movie, to make a narrative that has Margie Taylor Greene coming across as the hero. You know, and if you wanted to make some right-wing, you know, agitproppy movie about Margie Taylor Greene, you would either have to make the claim that Nancy Pelosi is in fact a traitor deserving of execution, very plausible, which I don't think it is, or you would have to have the stuff that she said, that Margie Taylor Greene says, be so sanitized and decontextualized and manipulated um, to make her seem sympathetic and persuasive. Um, you know, you can surely do totally fictionalized accounts of almost anything and make the bad guys seem like the heroes and the good guys seem like the villains. But the closer you stay to the facts, the more the moral architecture comes into play. And this is the, for when I, what I'm talking about, this heuristic that I use, it's basically like, what will history have to say? Now, lots of people know I am not a big fan of the right side of history, that phrase and all that kind of thing, um, as it's used as a political weapon. But I do think, you know, the verdict of history matters or the verdict of future historians matters. And I'm talking about the sort of bread and butter, nuts and bolts thing about when all the facts are out, how will the players in this time look? And... Um, it is very difficult for me to see how you're going to get, you know, it is entirely possible that Donald Trump has um, a better reputation 50 years from now among historians than uh, most people I know would predict. But I wouldn't bet that way. Um, I'll let me put it this way. It's entirely possible that that happens. It's, I think it's very unlikely that in the future, historians are going to think he was one of the great presidents or that he was a real hands-on manager, or that, um, you know, the general impression of people like me about Donald Trump was fundamentally wrong. Just don't think that's going to happen. The partisan stuff is going to evaporate in hindsight eventually, and the way he looks and the way some of his supporters look, his most ardent supporters like Rudy Giuliani, they're not going to go down well in history. And um, you know, and Rudy Gianni, you know, he's honest about that. He was asked, um, you know, he said, you know, lots of my friends talk about how I'm throwing away my legacy. And he said something along the lines of, you know, when it comes to my legacy, F that, um, which, you know, two points for honesty, I guess. Um, 
But that's so that's what I mean, lest someone accuse me of hypocrisy for bemoaning, you know, people looking at life like it's a movie. I do that too. But um, I do it in a different way than the way that I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who have so internalized in their heads the the narrative that they want to be true that they filter out the facts that tell them that it's not true. And they get into this sort of magical realism, which I think is a big chunk of all the QAnon stuff, you know, where people, you know, people say, you know, what are we going to believe next? We need something to believe next and that kind of thing. Um, they want the next installment in the, the, the series that they're streaming. You know, they want something to look forward to in the next installment. Um, I think that that explains a big chunk of the election was why so many people believe the election was stolen. I'm not saying that they cognitively, consciously, uh, cognitively is the wrong word. I'm not saying that they consciously say that's what they're doing, that, you know, they're seeing life like a movie. It's that they're internalizing the anatomy of how movies or TV shows or video games unfold in their heads. And it is giving them the sort of permission structure to, um, design you know their own bespoke reality and then when the facts contradict it they get really angry and they think it has to be fake news and all of that kind of stuff and so and the thing that sort of made me decide to write about this after all because as i said i think i said last week if i if i preview an argument on a podcast i kind of lose the, the 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 fuel to to write about it was i watched this interview with um mike lindell the pillow guy and I mean, it is bat guano crazy in all sorts of ways. Um, he was singing an interview yesterday with this, this, um, I don't know whether, I don't know how fringe or mainstream this thing is, but he gave an interview to some very, very, very hardcore evangelical Christian, uh, TV show. And, um, and he said that this documentary, which was released today, which he claims proves without a shadow of a doubt that the election was stolen, he sees it as this, um, this almost, he calls it several times, a miracle. He says, this is the miracle we've been waiting for. I think that's almost an exact quote. This is the miracle we need. And once people see it, he says there are only two choices. Either they'll see it, and this is what he believes will happen, he said in the interview yesterday, and I've seen no evidence that his prediction has borne out today. But he says in the interview that, you know, that today, Friday, um, people will watch this. The scales will be lifted from their eyes. The truth shall sh set them free. They will find God's grace, and the country will be united again, one nation under God. These are all almost direct quotes. and. Um, and he says, and if that doesn't happen, then it's the end times. And basically you gotta, you know, get busy, uh, because you're, you know, the, the book of revelation is, is going to be unfolding and, um, and you got to get your soul right because you're going to heaven and it's the end of, of life on earth. Because these, as he puts it, this evil has come into the world through these voting machines. He says they're in the evil is in the machines and it's the evil of Marxism and treason and, you know, mattress tag ripping or whatever. Um, 
Now, I think all of this is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in all sorts of ways. It's, uh, but he says this interesting thing. He says, when he, he says, I tell people to basically give them hope that you should think about the moment we're in like we're in a movie. And this is the dark part of the movie. And the happy ending is just around the corner. And again, this, 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 this documentary thing is what is going to, like a deus ex machina, um, deliver salvation to all of society. And I think it's a telling thing, like, not just because it gives you a sense of how he sees the world, that he kind of feels like he's in a movie, but also that's how he can communicate that idea to other people in a, you know, in a, you know, it's, it's a weird form of cinematic eschatology that he thinks that, that, that a, a passionate Christian thinks the way you communicate, um, the impending deliverance and salvation of this entire chosen nation, not necessarily mankind, um, there's a lot of Christian nationalism going on here, um, is by thinking of yourself as the protagonists in a movie and in the final act, everything is going to break your way. Um, I just think that's a sort of a, an interesting sociological tell about how we think about things now. I mean, 50 years ago, you would have said it's like in a novel, but you don't say that anymore. You say it's like in a movie. And I think maybe in 50 years, people say it's like in a video game or something. Um, anyway, uh, I get into more details and um, all that in the G file and you can check it out. What I think is kind of interesting and I, I didn't dwell on in the G file is, um, you know, ideologies come into the world, um, in part because the world wants them. Um, you know, there is not, it's sort of like, and I talked about this with Matt Ridley on here, um, it turns out that like the, the light bulb was being invented by like a dozen people um, in parallel simultaneously. And the race wasn't to be the first person to invent the light bulb or the radio or a lot of these things. The, the race was to be the first person to get credit for it and maybe a patent for it, which is a different thing. And, um, uh, and I think in some ways, ideologies work that way too. Um, you know, as I know in the Jew there's this, that, that the, the progressives in the Wilson era, they, and particularly among the German historicists who Woodrow Wilson was so influenced by, um, they argued assiduously for, um, relativism, uh, pragmatism and Darwinianism. And the argument was, was that, um, you know, particularly Darwinism, there's this famous line from Wilson where he says the Constitution needs to be seen as a Darwinian document rather than a Newtonian document. Newtonian was supposed to conjure that sort of old enlightenment stuff of, you know, of sort of that conjured like clockwork functionings of government that institutions had specific functions like in a machine. And they only did what they were supposed to do and no more. And they didn't change, um, which to me is a vastly preferable understanding of the role of government. Uh, that's why I'm against the living constitution. I want an enduring constitution. 
that it maintains its meaning until you actually amend it to change what it says. Uh, you don't breathe new life into it. But that's basically where we get the living constitution stuff is from this Wilsonian, Darwinian idea that meaning should evolve, that the documents should evolve, the rules should evolve, society should evolve. There was, you know, there's all this stuff from Wilson where he talks about how, um, you know, the, in the body, in, in the body, organs cannot be at war with each other. Um, you know, your liver and your heart cannot be um, battling out for supremacy. They have to work in tandem with each other. Uh, and that's why he thought the, the adversarial nature of our constitution, which has, you know, separate branches of government, you know, in an adversarial role, competing for power, competing, um, uh, for supremacy, you know, between the legislative and the executive branch, between the judicial branch and the, the legislative branch, between the state governments and the federal government. These were all features, not bugs of the Madisonian vision, which was, which was predicated on this notion that you just can't let power accumulate in any one institution or person too much because then it becomes dangerous. And then you run, run afoul of the problem of arbitrary power, um, where there are no checks on the will of a despot or even of a legislature to do whatever it wants. And so they set up a system where it would be in the interests of the various branches of government to have an adversarial relationship with each other. It's a very enlightenment notion about how you get to the truth through conflict, not through unity. And, and Wilson said, screw that noise. Um, we have the, the, the nation state is like an organic body. That's why the phrase body politic becomes so huge among the German historicists, among, among the American progressives. It was this idea that in kind of Hegelian fashion, uh, the state evolves over time into perfect harmony with its constituent parts, yada, yada, yada. We don't need to get too deep in the weeds and all this stuff. Um, but it is a good rule of thumb that when, at least among intellectuals, when you um, hear about phrases like the body politic, um, you should, metaphorically speaking, flip the safety on your rifle because they are going to try and sneak in all sorts of arguments about what to do with power that are antithetical to um, uh, classical liberalism. And, uh, and it's worth pointing out, because if I don't point it out, no one else will, um, these notions are reactionary. Uh, they are, as I always argue, they are attempts to slap on um, scientific-sounding jargon on much more ancient understandings of how to organize society. Right? The original societies were all basically familial, where you had a big man who was like the father of the tribe or the troop, the, the pater familius, and he ruled, um, sometimes with some consensus to be sure, but not democratic consensus, um, but political consensus, but basically he ruled as a little dictator of, um, his little tribe or band or troop. And that form of government scaled up into city states where you had little monarchs and monarchies, um, or God Kings or whatever. And then that scaled up into the more sort of medieval European, um, notion of monarchs as the, um, 
the father of the whole nation and that they ruled through the wisdom, you know, sort of paternalistic wisdom endowed to them by the divine right of kings and whatnot. And so much of that Darwinian, Hegelian relativism stuff was uh, a sort of backdoor way of making those kinds of arguments. At least that's how I still see it. And I haven't really been shaken off of that. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the you know, Stalin's rule of the Soviet Union was just a massively scaled up version of the strongest, most wily uh, head caveman ruling a band of primitives. And it just was different because he had tanks and factories and whatnot, but not because the, the, the fundamental psychological and political architecture was any different. Um, and so anyway, ideologies sort of come into the world to give um, permission for people to do what they already want to do to some extent. And there are exceptions to this. This is a complicated subject and there are you know, there are people who argue in good faith and with some merit, uh, people like Oakshot or, you know, my, or in Russell Kirk and, um, you know, my favorite line, which Kirk used to quote a lot was from H. Stuart Hughes, where he used to say, conservatism is the negation of ideology. And, um, there is one kind of conservatism for which that is true. But there's another kind of conservatism, the one I believe in, that incorporates some of that, that actually believes, no, conservatism is an ideology properly stood and understood and not a pernicious one. Um, at some point, Tom Sowell, um, not Tom Sowell, as, uh, as Scott Lincecum pronounced it the other day, but uh, Tom Sowell wrote years ago that... Uh, when necessary, it takes an ideology to fight an ideology. And um, what he meant by that, or I don't want to mischaracterize him, what I take from that, and I'm pretty sure I got this right given what the stuff he was writing about when he wrote that, is that um, you know you don't have conservative ideology as we generally understand it, sort of Jonah Goldberg conservatism, National Review conservatism, um, Reaganite conservatism, Federalist Society conservatism. You don't have that in all of its, you know, distinctions and nuances and varieties. You don't really have that until you have the Cold War. Prior to the Cold War, um, conservatism was, yeah, it, for some people it was a disposition, you know, a sort of a, 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 a temperament as people often called it. Um, you know, sort of characterized by the Disraelian muddling through or the, um, there's this guy, Baron, it's not Rothschild, but he's got a long name. And, you know, he's the guy who said, when, it, when change is not necessary, it is necessary not to change. That sort of Burkean trial and error, rely on your institutions and your traditions and make reforms at the margins. Don't do it too quickly because society needs time to adjust. What is it Burke says? He says, um, I must bear with infirmities until they fester into crimes, right? Because there's this idea that you need to, um, it's, it's, it's as I wrote um, in the G-File, I can't remember if it was, I guess it was last Friday. You know, it's the measure twice, cut once version of conservatism, the sort of temperamental conservatism. And 
to the extent conservatism in America was such a thing, it was um, distributed across both parties, also not in either party. I mean, Mencken had some of this. Albert J. Nock, for whom this podcast is partly named, um, had it. Um, But with the Cold War, um, World War II and into the Cold War, um, the conservatism that, you know, the sort of fusionist conservatism that I subscribe to had to be constructed in order to combat against, whether you want to call it communism or socialism or progressivism, um, this, or statism, this, this sense that, uh, you know, the state was there to do good where it can, when it can, whenever it can. That, you know, as I often used to say, for a lot of progressives, um, the state's mandate is to do whatever God would do if God existed. And, um, and in the context of the Cold War, which gave a real sort of geostrategic existential threat to focus people's minds, you had people like, you know, from you know, Friedrich Hayek through William F. Buckley cobbling together an actual ideological program. And when I say ideological, I do not mean some sort of Jacobin-like ensorcering um, of, of the mind that you don't see reality anymore. There are lots of people who make this argument that ideology, I gather Jordan Peterson is coming out with some book against ideology or something, and I haven't seen it, and maybe he makes great arguments, I don't know, but often when I hear people railing against ideological thinking, I think what they're really railing against is categorical thinking. You know, that, um, that there is some sort of, you know, platonic truth that you must adhere to that doesn't take into account reality. Um, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, when I talk about ideology, and I wrote about this at, at length in my underrated second book, Tyranny and Clichés, what I mean by ideology is simply a checklist. It's, you know, these are the things I value. Um, these are the things, these are the principles I find important that have been proven through, uh, you know, generations of trial and error to be good things. Some of them are just simply good things in their own right. You know, you can make a really great utilitarian case that murder should be banned, or you can start from a sort of Aristotelian position and say that murder is wrong, even if I could prove to you that um, in this specific case, uh, the benefit to society would be greater if I were allowed to murder somebody. And my view of what ideology is, is um, at least conservative ideology, is it's this checklist. And sometimes the things on the checklist contradict each other. And that's why you have to have conversations about trade-offs. That's why you have to say, you have to do a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. Because you know, forget killing baby Hitler. I think murder is wrong, but you know, if, and so I don't know, like, I don't know necessarily how I answer the question, do I go back in time and kill baby Hitler? Um, but if you gave me the option to go back in time and kill Adolf Hitler in 1931, before we were at war with him, I'd probably take that bet, you know, and you can make these cases. And this is, this is my point is that conservative ideology properly understood is simply a worldview that is open to new facts, that is open to new understandings and to new arguments, but the burden of proof for shaking 
me off my checklist entirely is going to be very high because I think there's a lot of accumulated wisdom in my checklist. I think, you know, you're going to have to do some really serious work to explain to me why socialism is better at improving prosperity and, um, and, uh, enriching people and, 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 and paying for the things that make society better than capitalism. You're going to have to do some work because the historical record shows that my ideological point of view, I think there's just more evidence for it. And then you get into the argument about what people mean by socialism and we're not going to do all that, but you get the point. Um, but anyway, other ideologies come into the world in different ways. And, you know, one of the things I think is sort of fascinating is that long before, um, Albert Einstein, uh, came out with his theory of general relativity, relativity as a term was a really hot buzzword among intellectuals, particularly German intellectuals who are subscribing to all that Darwinian stuff. Um, because the whole point of the sort of German historicism is that you, that you cannot judge, um, societies from outside the fishbowl. You can only understand them internally according to their own logic. And they're all evolving in a Darwinian fashion to be their true selves. And, um, this is one of the reasons which I think I've mentioned on here before we get the term Austrian school, um, because it was a term of derision from the, the German historical school who really hated all of these crazy, um, as they saw it, hated all of these crazy classical liberals and enlightenment liberals who believed in universal laws and universal principles and, and all that. Um, they thought that was all sort of outdated 19th or even 18th century thinking. And the new hotness was, um, you know, uh, adaptation, evolution, relativism, and all of these kinds of things. And so the, and I think Paul Johnson gets at this at the beginning of modern times, which is a fantastic book. You know, the, the theory of relativity was taken to be scientific proof that the relativists were right, which is a, just an enormous leap to get from, you know, the, you know, E equals MC squared stuff to, uh, you have no right to judge the authoritarian nature of, of Prussia, um, because everything is, everything is relative. Um, but that's what a lot of people did. And, um, and that's, that's one of the reasons why Darwinism took hold so much outside of the scientific world. Um, you know, I, I believe that, uh, was it Das Kapital? You know, Marx wanted to, I believe Marx wanted to dedicate it to, to, or maybe he even did to, to Darwin. Um, because, you know, for, for Marx, this was the scientific, you know, the theory of evolution, you know, origin of species stuff was the scientific corroboration of the unfolding nature of class struggle leading, um, dialectically to the glorious end times of history in the, I think it's the Ungabung where the, the thesis and antithesis, um, finally resolve their contradictory nature and you end in the, the, the sunny uplands of history where I should point out again, because all of this is reactionary, not modern, you know, the end of history for the Marxist is basically the world of the noble savage 
of Rousseau, where you just get to design your own life as you see it. You know, I think Marx talks about how at the end of history, you can hunt in the morning and write poetry in the evening. Um, you can do anything you want because the material uh, limitations on life have all been eradicated. Well, that's, that's you know, utopianism. And it's a religious form of utopianism uh, bereft of theology. And um, anyway, that's how we got on that. And so anyway, I think the reason I bring all this up is I think that, you know, I do not think that Trumpism is an ideology the way um, Darwinism or Newtonianism or however that's supposed to be said or Hegelianism or Marxism, they're not ideology. Trumpism is not an ideology in that sense because there is no intellectual coherence. There is no programmatic doctrine to what Trump believed. But as a symbol of a different form of ideology that I think is really emerging in our life, um, Trumpism is as good a label as any until we come up with a, with a better one. And my hunch is, and this, okay, so this is where I was getting at, I keep forgetting, is that we tend to slap these labels on these new ways of thinking and talking about life, and we give credit to the intellectuals who gave it a name, right? We give credit for the light bulb to Edison, but lots of people were working on the light bulb, and if Edison was hit by a bus a year before his light bulb came out, we still would have gotten a light bulb. Um, we still would have gotten the progressive era if, if um, Herbert Crowley never wrote The Promise of American Life, which everybody credited for two generations as the launching of, of, of progressivism, that it, you, know, you wouldn't have progressivism without it. You would have had a, the youth movement in America if, if Charles Reich never wrote The Greening of America. And, um, and, and I'm not saying that ideas don't matter and that intellectuals don't matter. My point is, is that we tend, to, we tend to give the intellectuals credit because they articulate the phenomenon that is already existing on the ground. And yes, they influence it and all the rest. I mean, Marx had a huge influence on you know, socialism and communism and stuff, but socialism and communism predate Karl Marx by a good, by a good deal. Um, and so they become kind of placeholders for it. And um, and I think that Trumpism, which is a bigger phenomenon than Trump, but is an interesting way to think about it, is this, I, this ideology, right? This worldview that says entertainment is the highest value, that says that sort of populist grievance mongering and pandering to passions and feelings is what politics is really about. Um, uh, you know, the, you know, Margie Taylor Greene saying the jokes on the Democrats because she didn't want to be on those committees anyway, because they're just a waste of time. That's not why she came to Congress. Well, that's, that's the ball game. That's what I'm talking about is that she thinks that going to her job, her constitutional duty as a patriotic American is to be a troll from within the institution of Congress. You know, Matt Gates, who um, you know, with his, you know, with his Mr. Heat Miser haircut, um, you know, as I keep bringing up, he says that, uh, you know, providing hot takes on TV is what governing is all about. Um, this is, you know, for want of a better term, this is an ideological point of view at this point and it is materializing all over the place. And I think 
it was in the works before Trump. Trump exploited it. You know, he exacerbated it. He um, he injected it directly into the veins of the Republican Party. Um, but if Trump had never descended from the escalator, this would still be unfolding as a phenomenon in our lives. This blurring between what governing is and entertainment. Um, this, you know, this idea that we're supposed to be appealing to passions um, because that's why we elect people rather than actually, you know, like writing laws. Um, this is an ideology that is in, that is just raging across uh, our politics right now. And as I write in the G file, it depresses me in particular because it's ruining conservatism as I understand it. It's doing, you know, imme- you know, immeasurable damage to the Republican Party. And, um, and while this stuff definitely exists in um, the Democratic Party, in fact, I could argue, and I, I could argue, I would argue, I do argue, that, that the left has probably done more to contribute to this atmosphere than the right has. I mean, I still remember when on Murphy Brown, Dan Quayle gave a speech where, or maybe it was Marilyn Quayle, sorry. Marilyn Quayle gives a speech where she criticizes the writers of Murphy Brown for, you know, uh, celebrating uh, single motherhood and out of wedlock birth. And whatever you think about those issues, fine. Um, You know, it's worth pointing out that the character Murphy Brown had permanent live-in help and was very rich and could afford um, to reject bourgeois morality in ways that a lot of other people can't, but that's a different argument. Um, but so Marilyn Quayle gives this, um, oh, again, was it Marilyn Quayle or Dan Quayle? A Quayle, um, gives this, the speech criticizing Hollywood for glorifying this kind of thing. And they dedicate a whole episode of Murphy Brown to her, to Murphy Brown, the fictional character Murphy Brown, feeling attacked and how outrageous it was for a politician to attack her for her lifestyle as if the universe of Murphy Brown wasn't a two-dimensional fantasy world and the world that this conversation was taking place was the real world. And um, you can look at so much of what Hollywood did starting in the 1990s of this constant blurring, including dragooning you know, news anchors from real news to be characters in, in movies. Uh, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the sort of softening of these distinctions was conducted by the left and not by the right. But regardless, where we are now is that the right is in this mode of wanting to do this um, design your own reality stuff. And the reason why that bums me out is because that's, first of all, yeah, it's my side. But moreover, there's an asymmetry between left and right in in this country, at least they're supposed to be. The right is the side that is basically manning the brake. And the left is the side that is manning the gas pedal. Now, I, I know this is a crude thing because I'm not saying that only the left gets to the side where, where progress is made and all that. I don't believe that. There are lots of conservative reforms that would advance, advance our you know, society in positive ways that would take proactive legislating and governing from conservatives, yada, yada, yada. But as a general proposition, conservatism, for laudatory and necessary reasons, 
keeps more of an eye in the rearview mirror than the left does. Traditionally, the left sees its utopias in the uh, sees its utopias in the future, and the right sees um, not utopias, but what uh, Thomas More described as an e-utopia, with the word EU, which means good, right? Like eugenics means um, the EU there means good, positive, um, uh, and and the e-utopia. And I'm only I don't. I'm only pronouncing it that way because I don't know how to pronounce it without confusing people with the utopia that begins with the U. Um, the good place, the notion of good society is central to conservatism because a good society is by definition not a perfect society. And the reason why conservatives aren't supposed to believe in a perfect society is because perfect societies aren't supposed to exist. That's why, that's what the word utopia means. The one begins U-T-O-P, you know? Uh, the book by Thomas More Utopia is a neologism that combines, I think, Greek and Latin to mean no place. In other words, it doesn't exist. It's Erewhon, right? It's nowhere backwards. It is not a real thing. And trying to bend society to a thing that cannot exist is inherently dangerous and tyrannical. But you can bend, or forget bend, guide a society towards a notion of the good. And that's a very different, more achievable thing. And one of the ways conservatism does that is by keeping an eye or keeping a hold of the things from the past that should be enduring and handed on to the next generation. It is supposed to be, that's, you know, we're the ones who say, you know, let's not throw out everything good about this country just to fix what's bad in this country. Um, and if conservatism becomes this sort of radical, um, you know, essentially utopian thing, which just wants to design society based on some abstract entertainment-driven fantasy rather than the facts on the ground and the reality, well, it's going to be difficult to count on liberals to do that. You know, um, conservatives are the, as, as, as a general proposition, are the group in America that is supposed to be out there defending the Constitution as written. Right? They're the ones who are supposed to be defending the old and tried against the new and untried, as, as Abraham Lincoln put it. And if they give that up, I have no confidence that you know, uh, the left is going to pick up that torch, um, at least not anytime soon. And so you're going to have two parties, each of them stamping, or two factions, each of them stamping down on the gas pedal, um, fighting over the steering wheel. And that's not going to end well. You know, you need someone out there trying to conserve in a reasonable, realistic, factually oriented way the good old time stuff. And, um, and I don't mean make America great again nostalgia, but like, you know, fidelity to the Constitution and whatnot. And that's why I found it so depressing, all those congressmen signing on to that evil, and it was fundamentally evil, lawsuit put out by Texas, that guy Paxton, that would have overturned the Electoral College, that would have overturned federalism, that would have been as egregious an example of living constitution bullshit as anything the left has put out in the last 50 years. Um, because it was just a sign of how weak and attenuated the commitment to constitutional, you know, uh, norms 
the right the right really is. I mean, you know, if Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who know better and boast, have made their careers, particularly Cruz, boasting about how much he believes in the Constitution, the Constitution is his guide, for them to lend oxygen to that nonsense was deeply depressing to me because it showed you that they don't really believe it, at least not when the time of testing comes in. And, um, and that depresses me enormously. And I don't want to end on a depressing note, but that's sort of where I ended up. Um, you know, the, the, this design your own reality stuff, um, it's precisely the kind of argumentation that conservatives used to mock in the left. And now we have this much crazier, more hormonal version of it. And it is, it is, is going to end really, really badly. And it's very disappointing to me that I thought the, you know, Trump's departure from the scene would hasten its demise. But instead, you know, it's in the bloodstream now. You know, you had uh, Matt Gates said that he loved Marjorie Taylor Greene's idiotic press conference so much he felt like he needed to smoke a cigarette afterwards. Um, you got Alan West in Texas saying that there should be a referendum on secession in Texas, as if like conservatives haven't spent a good deal of time investing in you know arguments about why secession is not a good idea. Um, this whole take my ball and go home to design my own right wing Gilead nonsense um, is is a real sign of the rot that is taking place out there. And the only thing you can say in its defense is that it's entertaining, but that's the problem. It's designed for entertainment. It's not seriousness. And, um, and I, 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 the only way out of all this is through it, but it's going to be a bumpy ride for a while. Um, anyway, that, that's all I really got for now. I got to go do the edits on this G file. Um, and, um, I do highly recommend, um, the podcast, uh, on conspiracy theories. I thought it was, um, really, uh, it was a, it was a needed corrective for a lot of people, including me, I have to admit. And of course, um, got nothing but, uh, praise for Scott Lincecum's appearance. Um, he's always, you know, shows you what a wonky, weird, nerdy world I live in when giving the people Scott Lincecum is pandering <laughs> to my audience, but, uh, we're delighted to have him and delighted to have him involved in the dispatch. And we're delighted to have Chris Darwalt, um, on the team as well. There are going to be other exciting announcements coming in the weeks and months ahead. Um, if you got my email, um, about becoming a paid member, it only, it should have only gone out to what we call the free listers, the people who are subscribers for the, the free stuff. Um, it had a nice response from people who signed up, but again, be great if more of you did it, um, you know, this sort of fight for reality-based conservatism, um, is really, really important. And look, I, my teeth almost break when I say reality-based conservatism, because I heaped nothing but scorn from a great height on all of that talk from the left in the 2000s about, you know, how they're the members of the reality-based community and all of that. Um, but 
you know, this isn't that. And we need help from people who, you know, agree with me at least a little bit about why this is a problem and why it needs a correction. And if you can join up, that would be wonderful. Um, if you can't afford it right now, that is totally understandable. Uh, but, uh, we, if you can, um, we think the product is a value in its own right. Even if this wasn't an important cause, it's the cost of, it costs less than one burger from Chili's a month. Um, but we actually think the product that, that at that price, you're getting enormous value. And even if none of these problems existed, we would still stand by the product as being, um, as being inexpensive at that price. But you add in all this other stuff, it would be great if you could join the cause. And we appreciate it. We appreciate your support. And I will see you next time.